Welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live usually engages the Christian message before a live audience in Melbourne. Yet today our show isn't being recorded before a live audience. Instead today our show comes from the City Bible Forum office in the CBD of Melbourne. So today's episode is a bit like Logos pre-recorded, but nonetheless, I'm still sure you'll enjoy what we have in store. My guest today is Elizabeth Redman. Elizabeth is a journalist with News Corp Australia. She's written for specialist business and investing publications Business Spectator and Eureka Report and regularly appears in the Australian newspaper. She has appeared at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, the National Young Writers' Festival and the Emerging Writers' Festival. And she's also been a guest on radio stations ABC Radio National and 2SER and now on Logos Live. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here. It's great to have you on here. So you're a journalist. You've had experience in journalism. What interests you about journalism? Look, I really like writing. I wish I could say the first thing is that I want to save the world. And of course I want to save the world. But I really enjoy the process of writing, of thinking about an idea and putting it into words. Um, And at the same time as that, I I think it's important. I think that we do a lot of important work in hopefully helping people to understand what's going on in the world around them. Mm -hmm. And also it's fun because you get to talk to a lot of interesting people that you might not be able to otherwise. Like it gives you an excuse to say to someone, oh, you know, I want to ask you some questions. Sure. So who's the most interesting person that you think you've interviewed or you've met? Uh, Look, I don't like ranking people, but I (laughs) do. Sure, okay. (laughs) Give us a couple of of names. I did have a great moment years ago when... um, I was freelancing. I really wanted to know how chefs make mock meat. Right, you heard okay. of mock meat? No, it's, not really. It's, it's like pretend meat. Pretend chicken, but it's actually made from gluten. And I called this chef at this pub with a great, you know, vegan menu in Collingwood and asked him all these questions. And he said, oh, you can just come in if you want. And I, like, turned up to this pub and the chef showed me how he made mock chicken out of gluten and it was all stringy and he put in you know corn flavoring to make it like wow. chicken and he said I just love being a chef because there's so many new things to learn and I suppose with that mock chicken it just tastes like chicken I suppose like chicken like a lot of, a lot of things yeah. <laughs> obviously you're not writing in culinary circles I'm so not. much you're currently in business writing yes do you enjoy that it doesn't seem to be the most glamorous or prestigious part of journalism do you think journalism's glamorous, though? I mean, I suppose that there are elements to which it can be seen as glamorous. Like if you're reporting on celebrities. I guess. I, maybe maybe their life is more glamorous than the journalist who has to right. kind of stand in a queue or, you know, stand outside the red carpet for hours and go, oh, I can't go and buy a cup of tea because what if I miss them or something? But to your question <laughs> about whether I like business journalism. So I was at university when the GFC happened and I was doing a media and communications degree and I would read the front page of the age newspaper, print newspaper every day and just not really understand. And I would think something really bad is happening Mm. and I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And so it's been a really great opportunity to learn about business and about finance and about the corporate world and to try and understand more about how the world works. So I think if if you want to understand society and you understand something about politics, but you don't understand something about the corporate world, I think you're really missing out on a lot. So yeah, it's been really good. 
Now, is it true that you can't believe everything that you read in the news? Well, see, this is a really interesting question because if you're just kind of parroting something that you read in the news, you know, maybe you should kind of keep your brain about you. But at the same time, we work so hard, like I work so hard to report things that are correct, right, to get the correct information out to our readers. So I hope that people can trust what I write. Like that's, that's my goal. <laughs> so what's it like being a journalist? You've alluded to it seems like it's hard work, but do editors really scream, you know, hold the front page? You know, is that what it's like as well, a journalist? I'm in digital, so they might be screaming, that's top story, that's top story. <laughs> Maybe not hold the front page. Yeah, I mean, it's any job is hard. Mm. Um, it's not a job to do if you're not good at deadlines. So, <laughs> so if you're always late. Don't, Don't go into journalism. Yeah. <laughs> I've worked at different time lengths. So I, I worked as a breaking news reporter and my deadline was 10 minutes from when anything happened. Um, and I worked on a features desk where I had a deadline every week and I had quite a lot of things to do in one week and they all had to be done at exactly the same time. Um, and, of course, everyone would want to make changes at the last minute. Um, And before that, I used to work in magazines. So you had maybe three or four weeks to do three or four weeks work. And then everyone would want to do things at the end of three or four weeks. Now, sometimes you see on the news that there are two different news outlets report the same event, but there are differences between the way they've reported the two stories. Is this a common thing that happens in news reporting? absolutely, because it's so competitive. Mm -hmm. So... If you're a news publication and there are a lot of different news publications, you need to give readers a reason to read you. Um, And so you might be trying to get some extra information. You might be trying to interview someone and find out something that your competition doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Or you might just think something's important and another news organisation might not think that's the most important thing. So particularly when you see someone give a long speech. Yeah. So if maybe um, a politician or, you know, an economist or whoever gives a long speech, then you see journalists pick the different parts out of that speech that they think are important. Mm-hmm. And then you might see two quite different write-ups. Mm-hmm. And you've, you've seen that in your experience? You've yeah, seen- yeah. So something that I used to do on the news desk was you'd have a long speech and you had to decide what to put in the first sentence or, or what to run on. Um, particularly with Reserve Bank officials, they often will give quite long speeches, <laughs> but they'll publish the whole thing, right? So yeah. you have kind of five pages or something and you have to decide reasonably quickly what you think is important. And they might talk about, you know, banks and housing, yeah. you know, which are kind of related but separate issues in the same five pages, and you might say, oh, I think, you know, property's been really topical, let's run on that. And yeah. someone else might say, no, no, I, th- I think what's going on with banks is more interesting. Well, let's explore this a bit, idea a bit more. So could you tell us a little bit more about some of the conventions that are used by news reporters? Yeah. Um, yeah. So the thing is, you can't write down every single thing. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so if, if you're using the example of a speech by the governor of the Reserve Bank and it's five pages long and probably he uses a lot of jargon yeah. and you're trying to let someone know what he said quite quickly, I mean, you can't just republish the whole five pages. You need to get that down to a couple of hundred words yeah. tops. 
And so there are rules that you learn in journalism school about how to do that, like how to represent someone mm. fairly. And so something like you can paraphrase what he said, but you mm. have to keep the meaning the same and you have to attribute it to him, right? Or if you want to quote something that he said, like you don't have to quote the entire paragraph, but if you want to quote the first and last sentence of the paragraph, you need to kind of close the quotes in between and say, Glenn Stevens said, you know, just, just little yeah. rules about how you write something down so that you're being accurate, but that you also are able to filter a little bit of the information. Right. What about reporting figures? Yeah. So particularly if um, if there's currency conversion. So if one US company buys another one, then you'll see headlines that have the US dollar figure, but then you might see headlines that have the Australian dollar figure mm. and no one will specify which dollars they're using or they might round to, you know, one or two decimal places. And so yeah, kind of at first glance you're going, well, how much did this company buy this other company for? But all the figures are right. Yeah. It just depends what rule they what, followed. And what figures are you actually comparing? Yeah, or something like if you're doing economic data, there's trend figures or seasonally adjusted figures. So the seasonally adjusted figures might pop up in one report right. and then someone else might use trend. Well, today we're considering some of the differences between the gospel accounts of the resurrection of Jesus and the suggestion that we can't trust the gospels as reliable historical records because of these differences. But before we do that, Elizabeth, we'd like to hear a little bit more about your story. What convinced you to become a Christian believer? Do you know, for someone who's supposed to be a storyteller for a living, I don't actually have a great story. People say, oh, you you have to have a moment. You have to have one moment. It's <laughs> yeah. a really good story. I just, I kind of don't. I just, you know, I grew up going to church and I just always remember believing in God and Jesus and always right. been aware that there was kind of something more going on in the world than what you could see. Um, and, and I would talk to God and I knew that God loved me, mm. um, which is amazing. And then uh, when I was at university, one of my friends invited me to the church that I go to now, um, where there was a really big emphasis on the Bible, yeah. which sounds obvious, but it hadn't been emphasized quite so much at the churches that I'd been at before. And there was just this assumption that everyone going to church would read the Bible by themselves every day. Mm. It's like, what? Like, how do you all have time to do that? You're at university. (laughs) Um, So, okay. And so I I sat down, you know, at the end of every day and, you know, started reading the Bible. And the thing that really amazed me was how amazed everyone was at Jesus all the time. Jesus would do something and all the people would be amazed. And I really appreciated the opportunity to be at a church that puts a lot of emphasis on on good teaching of the Bible because as someone who quite likes reading and books, I've just been amazed at what an amazing book it is. Mm, the Bible, well, the Bible is a, a book. Well, it's 66 books, yeah, right? right. Yeah, yeah, it's a collection yeah. of books and written over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years and yet it all hangs together in a way that is amazing. Mm. And it's also it contains different genres yes. and different types of literature, which we'll just touch on now because you're familiar with different types of literature, I imagine, Mm. being in the the world of writing. Mm. Uh, So when you read the Gospels, which are the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have, what kind of literature 
do they strike you as? Yeah. Are they so breaking news reports? They're not breaking news reports. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to respond in 10 minutes. <laughs> before people had computers, they would remember a lot more things in their heads, right? Yeah. So they would t- remember something and they would tell stories to each other and they would uh, maybe be better at remembering poetry or songs or stories and tell them to each other in a community, right? So there would be oral tradition and then um, at the time when all the people who had met Jesus and were telling people about how they'd met Jesus were getting a bit old, that's the stage when the Gospels were written down on paper um, within about a generation of Jesus' life. So not breaking news reports, but they were written in the style of uh, Greco-Roman biography, essentially. But there are differences between the accounts of the resurrections. And well-known sceptical scholar Bart Ehrman from the University of North Carolina suggests that these differences in detail between the resurrection accounts make them unreliable. And hence he suggests that the gospel accounts can't be trusted for historical accuracy. Now, did it surprise you when you learned that there were variations in details between the resurrection accounts? So... I don't think I'd looked at it very closely until I looked at it closely last year and I read through the different accounts and with with the intent of doing some research and, and understanding why there were these differences. And I remember reading through them and going, oh, they're really different, actually. Like, I wonder if this is a problem. Um, different that, to an extent, though, aren't they? Well, so the basic details match, which yes. I knew, but then that was kind of a bit of a process of understanding why there are differences that at first glance you might think, oh, yeah, I wonder if like this guy has a point, but Ehrman has a point yes. in saying, look how different they are. What do you make of this objection now? Yeah, absolutely. So having having done some research into why there might be differences, I, I wonder if the objection that oh, there are differences in the gospel accounts, is a bit like the objection that goes like this. Genesis says that the world was created in seven days, therefore Genesis is wrong. You know, like someone just kind of read through Genesis once and went, oh, well, that seems wrong, the end. And I think if you are prepared to put the time in to have a bit of a closer look at why the Gospels or why the book of Genesis are like they are, I think it hangs together pretty well. Okay, so maybe can you share some of your reflections as to why there are differences in details between the different resurrection accounts and the different Gospels? Yeah, so firstly they were written by different people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever used Google News. Uh, I've used lots of different Google things. I don't think I've ever used Google News. There's a website, Google News. I'm sorry, I should... I should, I should, I'm in the presence of a journalist. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, you can see on Google News, you know, there are, there are 200 news reports about this breaking story. But you might realise that a lot of them are AAP. Right. Like they're the same. And that's not kind of a different source of information. Just a whole lot of different publications have published AAP. So if we had four different gospel accounts and they're all exactly the same, like it would just be one source. Yes. Right, so four four different people had either either they were witnesses or they had access to witnesses and they'd written it down was the first thing. But also something that I realised was that just as we have conventions about how to write a news story, the writers of Greco-Roman biography had their own conventions about how to write a biography that are not immediately legible to someone living today because 
the conventions are different to the conventions about whether you're reporting trend or seasonally adjusting figures, right? Yes. Like the, just their own conventions that they had. And so you can see different parts of the Gospels where the writers are following different conventions about how they write down what happened. Mm-hmm. And I think that that explains why they don't at first glance look exactly the same. So what are some of these conventions? Firstly, there are some rules about how you word something or how you write something down, which are similar to the conventions that we have in news reporting. So something that comes up a bit is a literary device called spotlighting. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's where there might be a whole lot of different people in a scene, but the author only focuses on one of them or a number of them to highlight their involvement in the scene. Yep. And that doesn't mean that the other people weren't there. Yeah. It just means that they're focusing. It's a device. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and I mean, you'd see that used now. So, you know, if you have some kind of news event where a lot of people are in the room, mm. you don't necessarily have a list of everyone who's in the room. So, like, look at Parliament. Yeah. You know, you don't get a list with every report of Parliament about all the backbenchers. No. And so we, we see that in the Gospels. And then something like the device of compression. So that kind of seems really different to us today but there was a rule that if events took place over a certain period of time you could deliberately portray them as happening over a shorter period of time and that was just like a rule that you're allowed to do that Mm. and that's different to the rules that we might have as at journalism school Mm. but the writers of the gospels you can see sometimes they're following that rule Right, compressing events. Yeah, compressing the history into a a shorter period of time. Or another one that pops up is transferal. So one person said something, someone else caused them to say something, but the author attributes the words to the person who caused them to say something. And you, you see that a bit in the Gospels as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. That doesn't challenge the historical veracity of the account? No, 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 because someone caused something else to say something, the thing still got said, and the writers following the rules that they had about how to give an accurate report of what was said. Okay. So, so I mean, it's not it's not necessarily a, like the same rule that we would have, right? So some of these rules are different to the ones that I would follow and some of them are the same. Yeah. But each writer in their own context is following the rules about how to write something down. And these are legitimate literary devices. They're not trying to hoodwink or deceive their audience? No, they're, tra- they're like me. I'm like, I'm trying to write down what happened, you yeah. know? I, I want to not present a made-up report. You're trying so. to report the truth. Yeah, yes. and they're doing the same thing. And I suppose also the fact that there are four authors means that you've got four different opinions. So, in mm-hmm. fact, it's almost like, as you mentioned or alluded to, it's four different news sources, really, and yeah. they're all going to come with different perspectives and, and agendas. Or they might not all have seen the the resurrection or they might not all have seen Jesus but they might have spoken to someone who did mm. and and those people might have had different perspectives or different experiences. Mm. Well as part of Logos Live we do reflect on a part of the Bible, the Logos, and now we can look at a bit more detail at some of these differences in the resurrection accounts that Bart Ehrman highlights. For example, Ehrman considers the women going to the tomb. He asks, did Mary go to the empty tomb alone or did other women go with her. So Mark 16.1 says, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. But this is compared to John 21, which says, 
Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So what are we to make of this difference? Did Mary go alone or with other women? Yes, it probably with other women but I mean just because so we have one story that says just Mary Magdalene we have one report that says the two Marys and Salome but there might have been more Mm. right so like both of them might be using the literary device of spotlight spotlighting yes there are three there are three women listed in Mark 16 yes and there's one woman listed in John 20 yes but there could have been other women who don't get mentioned yes as well as you said, you don't have to create a list yeah. for every single person who's coming. It was Mary, and there was Mary, and there was Salome, and then there were all the backbenchers. <laughs> and, and all the reporters, and all, yeah, of the, other all the press gallery. Yeah, <laughs> the press gallery. Because, and the kids in school uniforms. Because they're trying to tell a story, I yeah. suppose. They're not just trying to report every single fact that was happening, and she was wearing a green dress yeah. at the same time. Yeah. But you think so those spotlighting would help understand the difference between what's going on yeah, and between I th- these two passages? I think Bart Ehrman read that and went, well, it's it they're different how how do you know how many women were there like we I'll throw my hands up in the air because they have different lists of the women who were there mm. but you know they just haven't mentioned the whole list of all the people who were there they, they were still there they still went to the tomb okay well maybe this would help us about the number of angels present in the tomb so mark 16:5 says as they the women entered the tomb they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed Whereas Luke says in Luke 24, 3-4, when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. So what are we to make of this? Was there one or two men inside the tomb? Well, if one says one and one says two, and we learn about spotlighting, maybe there were two, maybe there were more. (laughs) I think we can say that if one says one and one says two, then maybe one of them gets left out of the spotlight. Right. Okay. So there are differences between the accounts, but do these differences make us concerned that the overall sources aren't trustworthy as historical sources? So I think that it's pretty amazing that the basic details here match. So there were like there were angels. Yep. I've never seen an angel. I don't know if you've ever seen an angel. Um, no, no. Not, 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 not in the biblical sense, perhaps. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> but someone's written down that that there were angels. Yeah. And maybe one of the angels gets left out uh, of the spotlight, but there were angels. Yeah. I, like, I wouldn't be worried about how many there were. I think mm-hmm. the key thing is that they were there. Is it also significant that though the gospel accounts differ on some details, that the core story is the same? Yeah. And so... Something that you see each time is that they go to the tomb and the tomb is empty, right? The yep. women go to the tomb and the tomb is empty. And partly it's significant because you can see that no matter kind of how it's written down, the basic details are the same. You can see that it happened. But mm. also the, the basic details are that in this story that the women went to the tomb. Yeah. So you might not think anything of that today, but in Jesus' time, in Jewish culture, women couldn't really be witnesses in a court of law. So their witness was considered inferior to the witness of a man, right? Yeah. So if you were writing down the Gospels and you needed to make something up, like you needed to do a good PR job of making something up, mm. you wouldn't make up the women finding the empty tomb and mm. telling people about it because no one would believe you. Like, yeah. you would make up 
that the men went. Yes, a more credible witness in that, in yeah. those, in that circumstance in that yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, as Mark 16.6 says, don't be alarmed, he says, you are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. And all the four Gospels all assume an empty tomb, mm. that he actually isn't there. Absolutely. And so I think that's really key that however it's written down or whatever's emphasised, that's an incredible detail yeah. that they all give us, that the tomb is empty. So what's the implication then of the resurrection accounts if they are historically plausible or trustworthy? So what? So stop and think about that. The tomb was empty. Mm. And I mean, I was thinking about this in terms of people telling stories before they had a computer to just write things down straight away. And so um, there's another uh, scholar called Kenneth Bailey who's lived in the Middle East for a long time. He says there's three types of storytelling. There's Mm rumour and there's memorisation of Mm -hmm. the exact words. And then he says in between there's storytelling Mm-hmm. where um, you can tell a story, you can use your own words, but the community will police the basic details matching. Right. And that, that's what we see with this point about the tomb being empty. Yeah. We don't have any account that says, oh, the Jesus' body was there in the tomb because he was dead. Yeah. What we've seen from this community is that we have these four accounts of the empty tomb. And I was thinking about that when I was listening to a podcast called This American Life, Yep. Um, the reporters went in one episode to an aircraft carrier and interviewed some people working on this ship, this aircraft carrier, and one of them started telling a story, you know, in this kind of closed community, like these people yeah. are out on a ship in the middle of the ocean. One of them started telling a story and the other said, oh, no, no, that's not how it went, which is exactly the same as Kenneth Bailey's description of storytelling where you know, a community will say, you know, the the details have to match. Like, you have to tell this story properly. Mm. You can't just make things up. Mm. And I think that's what we see here where we get the four accounts of the empty tomb. A community said, no, this is what's happened. Like, you can't make things up. You can't make up reports. Mm. You have to tell this story of the empty tomb. So this story of the empty tomb is a story which you should hold the front page or what does it take the... Top, top, story. top story. <laughs> <laughs> top story digitally, yes. But if you were if you're in print, then sure, hold the front page. Hold the, <laughs> hold the front page. But why why is that? Why is it such a, a great story? Well, I never met anyone who rose from the dead. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. So Jesus died in my place, and Jesus rose again, and we know that Jesus rose again because of the evidence that we have for Jesus rising again. But also we read elsewhere in the Bible that that's a promise that we can rise again too, mm. that that we have the option of living eternally. Mm. We, like That's a good changes, news story. It's, yeah, well, it's a, a happy news story. Like, But that changes everything about how you might want to live. So, Elizabeth, reporting the truth, do you think we can trust the resurrection accounts? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. It's been a pleasure. Let me leave you with the Logos for the day. Mark 16.6. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live. Thank you to our guest today, Elizabeth Redmond. Thanks so much for having me. 